This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Last night, uh, the public policy manager for Uber argued for a bylaw that would not restrict or undermine its services. Hamilton is currently drafting uh, the bylaw. It's odd that some cities can make this work. Other cities can't make this work. Uh, In places like Ottawa, Waterloo, the Niagara region, they've come up with, I guess, uh, a policy or something that keeps everybody happy. On the other hand, in Calgary, uh, it looks like they've just uh, left all together because uh, they were talking about fees and, and so on and so forth, and Uber just thought it, it wasn't worthwhile in order to do in order to do, even do business in that city. To talk more about all of this, Marvin Ryder is with us, business professor at uh, Groot School of Business, McMaster University, and he's on the line with us now. Hi, Marvin. How are you today? I am fine, thank you, Scott. Thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this, Marvin. I've always been confused because uh, th- this whole issue is so vague at times, and yeah. Uber really doesn't want to talk too much about it. Whenever we've tried to get Uber on the phone, it's impossible. Uh, Yet it seems that some cities can make this work, some cities can't. Why are some doing it? Why are some not? Well, let me just take you back a little bit to the birth of Uber. Uh, Uber said, we're going to come up with a new kind of a model. And the, the word they like to talk about or the phrase they like to talk about is the sharing economy. We're not going to hire. In other words, I'm driving my car anyway. Why don't I just pick up somebody along the way and I'll share my ride with them? Uh, and that, that was the concept. So they're not a taxi service. They are a sharing service. But the problem with that is you sh- if you share, in other words, if I pick you up and give you a lift to work, you don't pay me. Whereas in Uber, I do pay you. Mm. Uh, and so what cities are struggling with is are you truly a ride-sharing service? And any time Uber has a chance to talk to you, that's what they're going to say. No, 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 we're not a taxi service. We're a sharing service. But when you raise the issue of the fees, it looks like a taxi service to me. So what you've got is different cities responding differently. Let me take San Francisco as an example, because San Francisco is in the middle of a tech hub, and they love everything technology. They have been fairly embracing of these new models. Another example is Airbnb, which is a house-sharing app as opposed to a hotel app, although, again, it looks like a hotel. I think it quacks like a hotel. Other cities uh, have had maybe a stronger taxi lobby, and, and I can just tell you this personally. Back in 2000, when I chaired the transition board, we were bringing the different cities together. At a public speech, I mused, I mused that in the new city, all we would do is make everybody's taxi license equal. In other words, if you're a Dundas taxi, you can come on into Hamilton. If you're a Hamilton person, you can go into Dundas. And there was uproar where people said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, they pay a different amount than I do to get these sorts of things. It's not that simple as just waving your hands. And that's the problem. The taxi business has been around for 100 years. There are layers and layers of laws and rules and licensing and procedures, which Uber just wants to wave away with a hand by calling it ride-sharing. So in the case of Hamilton, Hamilton's been struggling to find a bylaw that might work. Um, In the case of Calgary, Calgary said, um, okay, Uber, you can come in, but I'll tell you what, your drivers have to pass a police check. Right now there is, quote, a background check performed by Uber, but it's not performed by a third party. We want the police to do the check. And, um, oh, yes, uh, to allow this to happen, the drivers are going to have to take a $220 annual license to allow them to do this. Well, Uber said that's crazy and we're pulling out. Other cities have tried to find uh, other ways around this uh, to allow Uber to perform in some way. 
So what are the cities that are allowing Uber? Are they just throwing caution to the wind when it comes to things like safety, whether it's the driver, the passenger or the vehicle uh, insurance, that sort of thing, the yeah. driver's checks? How are they getting around all of this? Well, I don't know if they're getting around it. I, I, I think uh, I've said this to you before, that WWW, which we think is the World Wide Web, often also means the wild, wild west. And, <laughs> and sometimes these technologies go faster than you can actually think of a regulatory environment for them. So here's another example. If, if you choose to, of your own free will to drive for Uber, then I would highly recommend you check your uh, insurance on your vehicle because the minute you start being a conveyance, in other words, you pick people up and drive them to another place, you may be violating the terms of your insurance. You may think you're all covered in case of an accident, and of course, you think to your head, well, it's a very small chance that I'm going to have an accident. But the minute you do, you may find you have no coverage at all, and you may be on the hook for hundreds, if not thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars of damages. And that's the problem. Uber has come so fast uh, we like to call this disruptive technology. They they look at the world in a whole different way, and they get out there, and then they keep going. So let me just can bore you for another half a second with a couple of things. So Uber, not only do you have the regular Uber, but now they're introducing something called Uber Fresh. Uber Fresh allows me to call up Uber and have them go grocery shopping for me hmm. and bring my groceries to my home. We haven't figured out the rules around Uber, but they've come up with Uber Fresh, They've already launched Uber Pool. So Uber Pool, again, is kind of a ride-sharing service. Let's say uh, you and I are going to go into a concert tonight in Toronto. I might meet you somewhere. You leave your car, and we'll pick up three people, and we'll go in that way. And then they've already begun testing driverless cars. They've had, a, I guess now for about a month and a half, a program in Pittsburgh where they put out 20 of these cars. One of them went to the mayor of Pittsburgh, and uh, you're just supposed to punch in where you're going, and the car takes you there. So what they work on the premises, by the time you figure out the rules for the first model, they're already on model 4.0, hmm. moved on. And all of this started with the smartphone, when you think about it. <laughs> it did. I mean, that, that, that's what's created all of these indus industries, uh, has yeah. it not? The combination of, of, of uh, I, you know, I'll go back to the Internet. I think the Internet started to enable a lot of things. Yeah. Smartphone facilitated it. And then it's just very clever people looking for other ways around it. Let me just come back to, again to Uber for half a second. Is Uber even a successful company? Scott, in the second quarter of this year, they did $5 billion in business worldwide. They're in 66 countries, over 500 cities. First quarter of this year, $3.8 billion. So, my God, that's from quarter to quarter, that's a 30% jump in uh, business volume. Mm. But get this, they haven't made a dime in profit. Uh, in 2015, Uber lost roughly $2 billion. And so far this year, they're on track to lose a little over $2.5 billion. So, How are they losing money, Marvin? <laughs> well, those are all good questions. So part of, this, part of the deal with Uber is uh, I call up a ride, uh, and they say it's going to cost me $10 to go from point A to point B. I say, okay, and my credit card gets uh, uh, debited for that amount of money. That goes to Uber head office, and then Uber takes its cut and sends the rest to the driver. So even though they do $5 billion of business, most of the $5 billion goes to the driver's. So then you have to cover your overhead on what remains. And again, given all these fights around the world, they have a lot of staff time tied up trying to fight these things. They have just an awful lot of overhead. They think it's worth it because if they can clear the ground and clear all these objections, 
then their fixed costs will go down and they'll be profitable again. But for the moment, it seems to be getting harder and harder. We've already seen, I believe the total today is now eight class action lawsuits, some brought by taxi drivers, some brought by passengers. Uh, they've also had a separate issue. I think they've had now ten um, lawsuits from um, uh, I'll call the word victims. So we've had Uber drivers who have accidentally hit cars. They've accidentally run over people. And I hate to say this out loud, but they've even accidentally killed somebody in a traffic accident. This has all led to big lawsuits. And, of course, when you sue, you don't just sue the drivers. Since they were driving for Uber, you go after the deep pocket. So is this sustainable? Uh, and, and at the end of the day, with technology, will the public even need Uber in the future? Can't we just do this to mon- do this amongst ourselves? Well, I, I must say one of the things I loved about their appearance yesterday with Hamilton City Council was the little thing they tossed in at the end, that they viewed themselves as complementary to the LRT. So in the future, nice. once we deploy LRT, of course, it's a fixed route. How do I get people to the route? So we want to partner with the city of Hamilton as sort of ride-sharing to get you to one of the nodes along the route. And you see, we're complementary to the future, which is LRT. So again, to your point, I honestly don't know. You know, when you come to technology, oftentimes we have intermediary steps. We're, we're somewhere today that we won't be 10 years from now or 20 years from now. Um, again, the driverless car is going to make so many changes to things. We may not need Uber at all. We may have a whole different. That's concept. what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, will Uber will Uber even be around in five to ten years? Yeah. Well, let's say ten. I think it'll still be here in five, but in in ten, uh, you know, that's a that's a really good question. Now, even in that situation, I I uh, teach entrepreneurship and I tell people. You don't have to create a business for life. You can sometimes create a business that's only going to live for two years or five years to take advantage of a trend at the moment. As long as you go into it that way and say, I'm only here for five years, I'm not going to put down deep roots and spend all this extra money, I'm just going to get in, make my money, and get out, kind of like gold miners did once upon a time when a, when a vein of gold was struck. You can make money that way. And so that's part of Uber's problem. They're generating lots of revenue. They aren't profitable. They are still attracting investors. Toyota invested money in them. Google has invested money in them. They all seem to think that these people are smart enough to find some way to live on five or ten years down the road. I'm still not convinced. Uh, is that why perhaps they're so elusive when it comes to regulation? Is that once pe- once these two inter- once these two paths cross, it won't be viable anymore? Well, in particular. What they would like, if you're going to regulate them, that there be one universal regulation. So keep in mind, Uber is this multinational corporation. It competes against taxi services that are highly local. So Hamilton Cab does not compete against Toronto Cab, and that doesn't compete against Guelph. That's who their competition is. So how they can succeed, in theory, is by having this economy of scale, being national, international, offering roughly the same service to everybody. If you wind up with a patchwork of bylaws where in 507 cities you've got 507 different sets of rules about what you can and cannot do, this actually starts to thwart their business model because they've got to, okay, if it's Thursday and it's in Bangkok, I charge this, but if it's Tuesday in Paris, I do that this would become a real problem for them from a technology standpoint. So this is why, A, the argument to the city of Hamilton is find a non-restrictive bylaw, or B, if you've got to have a bylaw, pick one that's already out there that we've already developed a response to, and then we can, we can easily add Hamilton to the mix. Where will Hamilton be on this in the next couple of years? Well, you know, this is, again, a really interesting question. For those people who've dragged their feet, at least for younger consumers, we're seen as backwards. 
if you were to come to McMaster to my class of 52 students that I, I teach on Thursday, you would see that all 52 students have used Uber. Now, I have never used Uber, but all 52 of the students, they're all 20 years of age. They've all used Uber at this point because at 20 years of age, they don't necessarily have a car or they're in an urban environment or there's drinking and driving involved. Uh, and therefore, this is a wonderful service to them. So they see Hamilton as backwards as a result. On the other hand, by not jumping into this fray early, if there is to be a, a future company, we'll just call it Company X at the moment, that will wind up replacing Uber as we move into this new world of driverless cars, by not jumping in quickly, we may have a more stable platform down the road. So oddly enough, I'm I not all that upset that Hamilton hasn't uh, embraced the new technology quickly. Let's try to get it right Let's be open to the other things that are developing. Let's also keep in mind our own investments in urban transit and see if we can find some way forward. It is a very confusing area. Marvin Ryder has been with us, business professor at the Groot School of Business, McMaster University. Thank you, Marvin. As always, much appreciated. My pleasure. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We've certainly heard and, and actually had uh, a gentleman on from Hamilton who had experienced, I guess... Someone who had taken vodka from a store and then, I guess, uh, drained the vodka out of it, uh, mixed it with water or put water in it and then returned the bottle. Uh, then this gentleman bought the bottle of water, which he thought was, uh, was vodka. So we've certainly heard of that. We've certainly heard of theft of very expensive bottles of wine or liquor going out of the, out of the LCBO uh, undetected. So now what they've decided to do is they've got this uh, unit, which is called a bottle locks. And it'll actually go on the top of the bottle. And what happens, as far as what I understand, is you take it to the cashier, they remove it, and then you go off home with, with your purchase. Very, very similar to what we see at retail clothing stores and uh, this sort of thing. To talk more about all of this, Genevieve Tomney is with us, Media Relations Coordinator for the LCBO, and is with us now. Hello, Genevieve. How are you today? Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. Thanks for taking the time to join us. So uh, I, I think a lot of people are surprised that the, that the theft that the LCBO is as bad as it is, but I guess it's like any retail outlet. How bad is shoplifting at the LCBO? Exactly. Well, it's just like you said, like any retail outlet, theft is a reality for us, and it's one that we take very seriously. Um, but, you know, we do pretty well when you compare us against other private retailers of our size. So we call it product shortage, and we look at it as a percentage of our total net sales. So we're looking at 0.29% of LCBO total net sales, which were $5.57 billion in 2015-16. So it's a very small percentage, and I'll just give you the, the sort of average for other retailers, which is 1.97%. So obviously we're very pleased with, with how we do, but we're always looking at ways to do better because at the end of the day, what we're, what we're protecting here is a public asset. So why, why now? Why is this happening now? Is this something that's been on the increase? Uh, has it been happening all along? Why the decision to do this now? Well, so I'll take you back to fall of last year when we actually started this as a pilot project with one of our trade partners as a way to look at reducing the loss of some high theft items. And so we started it in about 10 stores, and what we found was that it was really successful at reducing theft, and it was a great return on investment for us, and so we've decided now to expand it quite substantially. Uh, what is being taken? I mean, is this is it certain types? Is it just the expensive premium brands? What is it that's, is there any consistency there in what is being taken? So these locks that we're using are specifically designed for spirits bottles. So that's where you're going to see them. But really, it differs between stores. 
Um, so it, it really depends on, on the store in question, what we're seeing um, being stolen. But like I said, you know, these are designed for spirits bottles, and that's, and that's where we're putting our focus right now. So how, it just seems odd, how do you get a liquor bottle out of the, out of the LCBO? How are they stealing these things? Well, you know, I, I, you can use your imagination, but it, you know, it's certainly an <laughs> issue that we, um, that we felt we needed to address. And just to tell you a little bit about how we're expanding the program, because like I said, we started in 10 stores, and now we're expanding it to approximately 130 LCBO stores across the province. And we're going to have up to a total of 125,000 of these bottle locks on bottles. So, you know, we're, we're reaching all regions of the province, and so there's a chance that you, you may see some at, at a store near you. So are these uh, just necessarily at, obviously you're only including uh, some stores at this point. Is that because it's a pilot project? Are you going to go forward? with this? Um, are you only putting this, installing this where it is a problem? Yeah, so we're obviously focusing on stores where we see higher theft rates, um, and we're doing 130 of our 658 retail stores right now. So it's a pretty good percentage to start with, but I would emphasize the word start because, you know, like I said, we started with 10 stores, and we were very impressed with what we saw. So expanding now to 130, and certainly nothing to say that we would stop there. Uh, are, are there certain areas where thefts are higher? Is there any, any uh, light you can shed on that? Where, where is this a real problem? Well, I don't have a regional breakdown in front of me, but I think, you know, it, it speaks to the fact that it, it reaches all parts of the province that we're actually putting these bottle locks in place in all parts of the province. So, um, you know, while I don't have specifics on that, I would say that it's something that, you know, we want to address right across our store network. Uh, obviously, this is something that's done province, uh, province by province, but is this something that is used in other uh, locales, and, and does this work? Has, has there been success there? You know, I can't speak to other jurisdictions. Uh, again, you know, this, this sort of started with us as a partnership with one of our, our trade partners, one of our suppliers, who, who wanted to, um, to try it out and address this issue. And, and so we found that it works well, and certainly we're happy to talk about our experience and share that experience with our other jurisdictions who, who may be experiencing the same issues. So in the, at the beginning of all of this, it was a supplier that came with the idea. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, they worked collaboratively with us on it, um, and, and so that's why we started very small. And then we uh, and then we really took off with it and expanded from there. But yeah, it was certainly a collaboration with one of our trade partners. So will this be on every bottle in the stores that you decide? How do you decide what uh, brands it, it ends up being put on? Yeah, no, you're not going to see it on, on every bottle. Like I said, these are designed specifically for spirits bottles, so you're not going to see them in the wine section of your store, for instance. Um, but really, we're leaving it up to the store's discretion to decide where they feel the locks would be most effective because, as I mentioned earlier, the, um, the types of products that we see stolen differ between stores, so we're really leaving it up to their expertise and their experience to, to decide where they'll be most effective. Uh, is wine an issue? Is that, some, is that an area where you're looking at into the future? Um, I mean, we're really, we're really focusing on spirits right now because that's where we feel like this product in particular will have the biggest impact. Uh, and it, does this, will this physically work on a wine bottle? Does it only work on spirits bottles? Why is that? That is a great question, and I don't have the answer for that, but I know that this particular product that we're using is designed for spirits bottles. Okay, so explain it to us. How does it work? What's the process here? Yeah, so if you actually look at, at, the, at the, um, the device itself, it's like a clear plastic um, topper that goes on the lid of the bottle, on the cap of the bottle. Um, it's not very big, and they're designed in different sizes to sort of fit with the, the individual size of the bottle, whether it's a big one or a small one. 
And, um, it, you know, you'll see it right there when it's on the shelf. And there, are, there will be signs in our stores letting customers know exactly what it is and what to do about it. And when you go up to the cash to pay for your product, the, um, the customer service representative there will take it off for you and then you're on your way. And they're reusable, so, so that's great as well. It's something that we can use over and over again. And, um, you know, it really shouldn't hamper the customer's uh, purchases in any way. In fact, it might make things a little bit easier for them because some of the products that in some stores may have been left behind lock and key before will now be able to be out. Hmm. Uh, and what about cost? Uh, h- how much do these cost? Does this add to the cost of the product that the consumer is buying? Yeah, so I mean, it's a commercial arrangement that we have with the um, with the bottle locks provider. So I can't provide a total cost for you because it's um, it's under that commercial agreement. But you know what, what we're see- you're not going to see this added on to to the price of your of your bottle um, necessarily. I think you know, especially where it's something that we're able to reuse over and over again. And like I said, you know, the return on investment for us really comes from seeing less theft. So, and we are seeing that return on investment. Are you surprised that you are seeing that kind of return on the investment so quickly? No, I don't think so because, you know, there was a lot of sort of research and discussion that went into this product before um, we went ahead with using it. And I think that everyone's, everyone's pleased to see the results, but, but not really surprised. Hmm. And how many of these little things would each store get? I mean, is it something, obviously it's not something they can put on every bottle, but do they have enough to cover certain, more than one brand line or, or anything like that? Oh, Scott, you're not going to make me do math, are you? Uh, well, better you than me. <laughs> um, so we have, like I said, up to a total of 125,000 of these locks um, hitting uh, approximately 130 stores. Now, it, they may not okay. necessarily be evenly distributed everywhere, right. but the stores are going to get a, a, a good chunk of them. And, um, and, and I think the great thing about it is that they're able to decide where they put them and use them in the way that they feel will be most effective, and they can adjust that as, as things change. Now, are you worried that if you lock up something that the theft will just move to somewhere else? And so, in other words, until you've got one in every bottle, it's not going to, you know, you're just uh, robbing Peter to pay Paul, so to speak. Well, so I think the bottom line is that, you know, theft is always going to be an issue for any retailer, and that the, the main point here is that we're doing what we can um, to reduce theft, to protect these assets, and also to keep our customers and our employees safe. I mean, really, at the end of the day for us, we sell the product that can be problematic if it gets into the wrong hands. So we want to make sure we are doing whatever we possibly can to prevent that from happening. And we take that very seriously because the socially responsible sale of alcohol really is the LCBO's mandate. Uh, so how do you think customers will respond to this? Will they care at all? I mean, this is just like buying a garment will they, where, you know, where they take the, the, the piece off uh, as you go out the door. Uh, same sort of thing. Do you anticipate any feedback or blowback from customers? I mean, from the pilot project, we've, we've had nothing but, but positive feedback. And I think, you know, you mentioned it right there. People are really used to seeing this kind of thing happen now in stores, so it's not an unusual thing to see. Are you expecting that all of a sudden when you're standing in the liquor store, you're going to hear, someone makes a run for it out the door? Well, you raise a really good point because um, so the bottle locks in themselves in and of themselves are, are a deterrent but what we're actually now also piloting are those um, those store those front door store pedestals and so the the bottle locks actually do have a chip in them which will activate these pedestals um, if it's taken out the door so we are starting a new pilot project I guess you could say with those pedestals um, to see if that can further help us with our um, with our reduction of shop theft so you know that 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 is something that that will happen in stores where those pedestals exist. But again, the bottle locks in and of themselves are, are a theft deterrent. Wow, you know, why not put a GPS thing in there? Next <laughs> thing you just follow the guy home. <laughs> 
Yeah. Oh, my. All right. So um, uh, any more, on, and this is totally off, off topic here. I'm gonna Since I've got LCBO on the line, I'm going to ask a couple of questions. Any more on marijuana? Anything you can tell us about that and uh, thoughts of LCBO getting into this business? You know, the position that we're in right now is that we're waiting um, for the federal government to proceed with their, their legalization and regulation of, of marijuana. And then the next step for us is to wait for direction from the provincial government. And, you know, we're, we're working on looking at publicly available information that may be useful to us should we get that nod from the provincial government. But obviously, um, we're waiting for that at this point. Uh, do you think it, well, I, I'll, I'll ask you anyway, do you think it's a good idea? Are, is the LCBO equipped for this sort of thing? Yeah, you know, I'm not going to comment on that. But I, what I will say is that, you know, we're, we're doing the, the research of, of publicly available information right now. Um, to make sure that if we do get that call from the provincial government that we've done our, our work. All right. I want to ask you one more thing, Genevieve, and it's sort of a pet peeve of mine, and I don't mean, I'm not here to slag the LCBO or anything like that, but I, I, I'm a little confused at this. And, and I remember I had a spokesperson on about this uh, a couple of years talking about it, a couple of years ago talking about it. And I, I, hear, I hear these announcements in the liquor store uh, whenever I go in there, and it reminds me of this incident. I had a friend of ours who uh, is a father, and he was in the LCBO. He's a wine connoisseur, and he, he enjoys wine and experimenting with wine from all over the place. So he, he's a good customer in that respect. Uh, he's at the store. He's with his 17-year-old daughter, and he's wine shopping. As he gets to the checkout stand, his daughter, like any good kid, is helping his her father lift the bottles out of the cart and put them on the conveyor belt. You know where I'm going with this. Yeah. So uh, at that point, uh, a discussion ensues and she's asked for ID the father says it's mine I've got the wallet I'm paying for it uh, she's just a good daughter helping me a- end of the line the sale was rejected mm-hmm. and I remember talking to somebody from the LCBO on this uh, afterwards when this all happened and she basically told me that it, 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 it wasn't a concern and that, that this sort of thing shouldn't happen. And yet when I walk into an LCBO outlet, I hear these announcements all the time about how if you're underage, you're not even allowed to touch the bottles. Uh, can you elaborate on that? What is the policy? Uh, because, again, I, I got conflicting reports as to what it is. It seems a little over extreme to me. I understand what you're trying to do socially and responsibly and such. But but how do you balance this? What is what is the regulation on that? Yeah, well, I think, you know, you um, you raised a really good point in the sense that we do have those announcements that happen in store because the best thing that we can do is to educate our customers about it. But really, the bottom line is that that is our policy. Unless you're of legal age, you cannot handle um, beverage alcohol in our stores. And, you know, we do the very best that we can to make sure that people are educated about it. We have our customer service representatives who are always there to help with a, an extra pair of hands if you need it. We have carts, we have baskets, and we are always happy to help if you need a little bit of extra help carrying your product. But, you know, again, I'll go back to what I said earlier that the socially responsible sale of alcohol is our mandate, and it's one that we take very seriously, and this is the policy. And, and again, the best that we can do is to take opportunities like this to educate people about it, to let them know that that is the policy so that we don't get into a position where somebody feels uncomfortable or upset when there's an interaction in our store. But, you know, we're always there to lend a helping hand if somebody needs, you know, somebody of legal age to help them handle their product, and that is the policy. But since when has it been illegal for an underage person to touch a bottle of alcohol? Like, again, I remember as a kid going in with my my parents, and, and that was never an issue. Why is it an issue now? Well, this 
this is the policy that we um, are working under and the policy that we are enforcing. And again, I would just go back to the education piece on it that, you know, we are trying to get that message out to everybody so that they know. And, you know, I can completely appreciate that it, 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 it can end up in a difficult position, but that's why we are there. That's why our customer service representatives are there to help and, and to help you carry purchases to the cashier, cashier if that's what you need. But that is the policy that's in place. Uh, you don't think that it's overkill because it isn't illegal for a, a kid underage to touch a bottle. So, like, it is for drinking and consuming and such. But in a scenario like that, do, do you think it's not overkill, even to the extent of making the announcements? I mean, to me, it, sound, it, it reminds me of being in an airport customs Yeah, well, what uh, I can scenario. say is that that is the policy in LCBO stores, and the announcements are there to educate people about that policy. All right, uh, Genevieve Tomney has been with us, Media Relations Coordinator for the LCBO. Uh, This fall, bottles at the LCBO stores will be on lockdown, literally uh, exactly what we're seeing in retail for the exact same reason, theft. Genevieve, thanks very much for the time. Much appreciated. You're very welcome, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, I'm not sure how many of you watched the vice presidential debate last night. The fact that we're even talking about it is unbelievable because... Well, even a couple of weeks ago, would you have known anybody that would have said, are you going to watch the presidential debate tonight? It just doesn't happen. And for some reason, this is much like, this is much like a, um, the premiere of a reality series, a reality show. I want to say Survivor because it was more exciting than The Apprentice. So does that carry over to the vice presidential debate? Uh, I don't think so, especially when there's a wild card baseball game on uh, the night, uh, the same night. I, I think good luck with that one. However, I did record it. I did go back and forth. I didn't watch the entire thing, uh, but enough to see that uh, I don't know if it turned out the way everybody thought it would. To talk more about all of this, Michael uh, Tobe is with us. He is a former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. He is on the line with us now. Hello, Michael. How are you today? I'm well, Scott. How are you doing? Good. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. First, uh, fascinated by uh, what you did as far as a speechwriter. Tell us a little bit about that. How do you do that? How do you, first of all, how do you get that job? Uh, Secondly, how do you massage someone else's words and write a speech for them? Yeah, I've been asked the question many times in the past, and uh, basically the way you get the job traditionally for something like a speechwriter is who you know rather than what you know. Mm. And obviously I've been involved in the political process overall for over about 25 years, and I've been in writing for now over 20 years. So I obviously know a lot of people. I have a lot of connections within the small-c conservative movement in this country, so it was an easy entree into that position. But in terms of writing words for other people, you're right, and that's a real trick to this game, because if you have a thin skin, you're not going to survive very long as a speechwriter. I think it's basically about as simple as that. What you have to sort of do is you have to, A, craft words as you think the person will write it. In this case, that would have been then Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Mm -hmm. So I've known Mr. Harper since about 1996, so I had a bit of an understanding of his ideas, his mindset, etc. But I also then had to sort of put myself into his shoes to determine what I should craft as a message for a particular audience. And that leads into point number two. You have to sort of massage the words in different situations and in different scenarios. If you're going to have a greeting, for example, at, say, a cultural event, that's going to be very, very different than a speech, for example, talking about a major foreign policy decision. Hmm. So you have to kind of learn to sort of weigh and balance 
the two ends as best you can. And if you're able to do that, you can basically create, in my opinion, very top-flight speeches that will work for basically any situation that you have to get involved with. How much is the person involved in the writing of it? How much do you work with them? You know, it differs for everyone, and each political leader is different. You can look at U.S. presidents, um, Australian prime ministers, <laughs> German chancellors. They all have sort of a different technique of how much they work with a speechwriter. I can tell you that very briefly, the speechwriting unit was very different during the time I was there and by the time that I left it. When I was there, there wasn't a very strong presence of the prime minister. We did meet with him a few times, but generally speaking, it was a lot of interplay with other people. So you would have many different senior people and many different eyes and ears looking at your work. So the prime minister would certainly look at it, but also the chief of staff would look at it, uh, senior advisors would look at it, and from that you would have this draft which would go through sometimes maybe as little as two or three versions, but upwards I had one that hit about 16 overall, and you have to sort of be pretty patient with things like that. Wow. So that's how he did it then. I can tell you that as the years went along, and a number of years after I moved, the speechwriting unit was actually shifted from Langevin Block, where we were initially based, to what's called Center Block, or the main House of Commons. When that speechwriting unit was put in there, apparently, from what I understand, the interplay between the Prime Minister and his senior advisors and the speechwriting unit was much more extensive. They would meet much more often. But I don't think necessarily one system is better than the other or one style is better than the other. I think you basically have to see what works best for the leader, what works best for the speechwriters, and how they, it, how they play from that point on. How many speechwriters would somebody like a prime minister have? Well, again, I mean, it, it depends on a leader. But for this prime minister, generally speaking, hmm, there were four, including myself when I was there. Mm -hmm. I know that at periods of time they went as high as five. I think there was a short period of time when they were as low as three, but that was basically during a hiring period from what I understand. But when I was there, the common number was four, and I can tell you for a mid-sized power like Canada, four, three to four speechwriters is pretty typical. High burnout factor in that job? There can be. Um, again, it depends how long you do it, and it depends how well you get along with people. Hmm. <laughs> if you hmm. don't have good interpersonal skills, you're not going to last very long, Scott, that's for sure. Um, but, yeah, sometimes there can be a very high burnout rate. I've been told in Australia, during some of the prime ministers who were there, and especially John Howard, who was a very successful prime minister there for many years, the average t length of a speechwriter was somewhere in the neighborhood, and don't quote me on this, of three to four months. Wow. Which is extraordinarily wow. fast. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that the speechwriter was fired and then went off, say, to the public sector or private sector. He or she may have then been just shifted into another government position, but it's a pretty rapid turnover. I can say with Mr. Harper, there were some people who lasted very short periods of time, and there were others who lasted years, and that's just sort of the way it worked. Once you find somebody who does something well for you, do you have a tendency to keep them if you feel that they've represented you as best, uh, as best someone else can? Well, it's the, it's the logical way to handle things, let's put it that way. I mean, if you have someone 
who you enjoy, uh, the words that they present, the sentences that they present, the way they craft long speeches, short speeches, etc. I think you have to do your darndest to keep them there as long as possible. But again, look, sometimes there's also a bit of trial and error involved. There are some people who I'm sure went through there because I don't know the lifespan of every speechwriter that Mr. Harper had, and I don't know how everything went from A to Z. But I can imagine that in some cases, some people right off the bat were well accepted. You know, the people, he enjoyed their work and he was very happy with things. And others, it might have been trial and error that maybe over time they became uh, more confident, shall we say, in their position and were able to handle bigger duties. So I think it just sort of depends on the person. What makes a good speechwriter? Hmm. Well, there are a lot of things that make a good speechwriter. I mean, I certainly believe that experience has to be one of them. Um, and by po- experience, I don't mean political experience. I mean either writing experience or journalistic experience. Mm-hmm. You don't have to be a speechwriter right off the bat to write speeches. I wasn't a professional speechwriter before I did this. And I can tell you that op-ed writing, which is what I've done for the past 20 years, is very, very different than writing in speech for someone else. But you can certainly bring the elements that you learned in that particular craft into this new craft, that being speech writing, and be very, very successful. So I think writing experience is one. Certainly, without question, even though it's not always necessarily the case or the requirement, I think you have to be ideologically in sync with the political party or the leader or whomever that you're writing for. If you don't really like the person or don't agree with his or her ideas, Mm. sure, you can obviously write things that are contrary to certain opinions. I've been an editorial writer, and that's one of the things we do. The trick is we don't always write things that we agree with. We write things that are based on a consensus, and we may be the odd man out here and there. However, if you agree with most of what they represent, politics, economics, culture, etc., then it's very, very easy to work in that level. And the third and final thing, very quickly, is ideologically you have to be very sound. Like, I don't think that a person can really be a speechwriter and not, let's say in my case, have a small-c conservative position. I think it would be very, very hard to bring in, say, a liberal or a new Democrat mm-hmm. and hope that he, that he or she could actually evolve and actually work very well with a unit that is inherently conservative around him or her. Right. So I think those three things make for a good speechwriter. All right, Michael, let's talk about the vice presidential debate last sure. night. In your mind, a winner, who would that have been? Oh, with, with ease, it was Mike Pence. And that would be... Uh, Donald Trump's running mate for yep. vice president. Mike Pence did, in my opinion, an excellent job overall of doing two things which were actually very difficult to do. One was defending uh, Republican, the Republican Party values and conservative values, that being U.S. conservative values, as much as he possibly could throughout the debate. While that's inherently easy for someone like Mr. Pence, who is a Republican, to do, it has become rather difficult in, during this electoral cycle because Donald Trump, quite frankly, doesn't act like a conservative, doesn't act like a traditional Republican, and has just been all over the map of places. Hmm. So basically, Mr. Pence was really there in his one vice presidential debate to sort of talk about the modern conservative values and ideas that many Republicans cherish. But the second one, which was the harder one, is he actually had to sit there and defend Donald Trump without directly defending him. So, in other words, he had to basically stand for his candidate. He had to defend Donald Trump's right to hold X view, Y view, Z view, 
But at the same time, he didn't conditionally say, I defend Mr. Trump in all these things, carte blanche. He actually just sort of said to him, I can understand his position here. I recognize what he's saying here. You're misrepresenting what Mr. Trump has said about Russia, for example. And by doing that, he actually protected himself, because I think he wants to have a political future Mm -hmm. after the 2016 presidential election. But he actually came out as a person who was willing to defend the man who stands above him without basically holding a sword, thrusting it in front of him and saying, I defend thee. And I think that's how it worked. Many said, uh, many pundits said that he didn't defend Trump, that he should have done more to defend Trump, and in doing so was protecting his own political career, perhaps for the next election. Should he have defended him more? Is that, could you win that battle? Well, you can't win that battle. That's why I alluded to. He actually defended him without properly defending him. Yeah. So in other words, he did his duty as a vice president, which is to stand behind the presidential candidate. But look, quite frankly, behind the scenes, I'm sure that Mr. Pence probably has a lot of issues with what Donald Trump has said on a variety of things. And as, as we all know with politicians, when he or she stands on their soapbox and makes comments in front of the people and presents a position or a, a type of value that they hope people respect and understand and recognize as being part of the mantra of the party they belong to, they may personally feel differently on particular issues. We don't know how Mike Pence truly feels about the way Donald Trump handled his tax returns. We just saw how he handled it in a, in a vice presidential debate. We don't know if Mike Pence truly agrees with the fact that Donald Trump has made I wouldn't say necessarily praiseworthy, but has made nice comments about uh, Russian Premier uh, Vladimir Putin. And I don't necessarily know if Mike Pence would necessarily be happy and would have done the same thing in that light. But as the vice presidential candidate, yeah, he did have to protect his own skin, because as I said, he wants to have a political future going down the road. So he didn't come out and attack the presidential candidate. He defended him as best he could. And I think really with those sets of circumstances, and you can put yourself into his shoes as well, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners can too, what differently would any of us done? We Hmm. would have done exactly that. Uh, Was Pence better than Trump? And how does Trump feel about Pence's performance, do you think? Well, uh, Pence certainly is much smoother uh, than Trump. He's a much better speaker. He's far more focused. He doesn't obviously have the pizzazz or personality. We know that. Mike Mm -hmm. Pence is a very straight-laced figure, and the way his speaking style is very smooth, operative. It's exactly what you would expect from a professional and polished politician. So that's good, and that's actually something that you want to see, and that's what a lot of, shall we say, Republicans and conservatives in the United States who are struggling to decide what they want to do with Donald Trump, that being whether they vote for him or not, will be happy to at least see that the vice presidential candidate sort of fits with what they believe to be a, pro- a prototype politician. Um, but in terms of what, how Donald Trump probably felt about it, I think it would look two ways. Number one, most Republicans and quite a number of Democrats came out and said that Mike Pence won the debate, so obviously that would make Trump happy. But number two, I think it would also make Trump happy and make him proud of the fact that in the end, after sort of having apparently a very difficult decision behind the scenes as to who he wanted for his running mate, it looks as if he made the right decision because the guy he chose came out, fought against Tim Kaine, which is Hillary Clinton's running mate, and for the most part just beat him to the punch by basically, as I said, sort of following a proper message 
toting a conservative line and trying to ensure that, yeah, there's always going to be controversy around Donald Trump, but I'm going to try to you know, lower the tone. I'm going to lessen the mood. I'm going to ensure that people start thinking about the issues rather than worrying about every tweet that Donald Trump puts out, which is obviously hard to do. So for, that, for all of that, my guess is that Donald Trump probably privately today is very happy overall. Uh, what about the performance of Kane? Uh, I, I thought that he he was he, he interrupted far too often and, and too didn't often. and didn't even have to. Why, why did he Why did he be Why was he on the attack so much? I mean, he didn't have to, did he? No, no. Look, there are two reports saying that Tim Kane interrupted roughly seventy times during the vice presidential debate. That's 70 times in 90 minutes. That's an enormous amount. I mean, that's more than Donald Trump interrupted Hillary Clinton during the first presidential debate. Well, that's my point, Michael. I mean, that was the big that was the big draw from the first debate was that he would constantly interrupt and constantly interrupt and then say nothing. I mean, how could Kane get trapped into doing the same thing? Well, look, unfortunately there is a bit of a problem. Number 1, if if anyone knows Tim Kane's history, this has always been Tim Kaine's speaking style. He always thinks he's the brightest man in the room, when in fact, generally speaking, he's sort of down <laughs> below the halfway point. <laughs> Tim Kaine has obviously has a lot of political experience. No one's questioning that. But if you look pound for pound and you compare him to Hillary Clinton, even though I don't like Hillary Clinton, obviously, overall, he's much, uh, Kaine is much weaker than Clinton, and obviously the Clinton camp knew that. Sometimes you want to obviously have a very strong vice presidential candidate to go out, carry your message, etc. I think in the case of this, especially when it's a very historic election with the first woman running on a major party ticket to become president of the United States, you don't want to have a vice presidential candidate who can necessarily take over the, the circus, so to speak, and right. basically run things his way and gain more media attention and get, and get a lot more praise than she would. So I think basically, although the Democrats didn't have a huge talent pool to choose from, Tim Kaine was experienced enough, probably solid enough in their minds, and probably fit well enough without sort of having an overarching personality versus Hillary Clinton that it just made sense for him to go on the ticket. And why he acted like that, this is the way he is. He always feels that he's he has the perfect answer, the perfect idea. Most of his lines were rehearsed, which I think right there and then was key to the problem of the vice presidential debate, to the point that Mike Pence even once said to him, you know, that's a really great set of lines, and I'm just paraphrasing, hmm. how long did you spend on it? Yeah. You could see there was no way he could come up with four points with that much information on the fly. It was hmm. impossible to do. So he just unfortunately walked into a trap that, yes, you're right, other politicians, including even Donald Trump, have come into. And for that reason, he really looked like the weaker candidate versus Mike Pence, no matter how many facts they check, no matter how many things they discuss about their two messages. Pence looked like a person who was in control of the situation, whereas Tim Kaine, all he wanted to basically do, and you got it, was just interrupt over and over again. Mm. Uh, only got about 30 seconds left. Quickly, uh, does this change? Most of the time, vice presidential debates have no impact on the outcome. Does it in this election? Probably not. The only thing that it will do is it'll at least make some conservatives and some Republicans happy that if they have issues with Donald Trump, at least the vice presidential candidate seems normal and seems like a positive figure who, if some sort of health problem or political problem ever came up, 
could easily step into the position. That is the one thing that Mike Pence added to the ticket, and that's certainly worth its weight in gold. Michael Tobe has been with us, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, fascinating. Thanks very much for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Have a good day. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.